welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. My name's Danny. And I'm Victoria. As winter is receding and blossoms are bursting, we're thinking about the new beginnings and changes spring brings. Perhaps it's the slowly rising temperatures or the sunsets pushing later into the evening, but the prospect of new possibilities seem endless. It might be going out to meet new people, starting a new job, picking up an unfinished project or reinventing something in the past for today. Yes, change can seem daunting, but we say embrace it. But don't just take our word for it. We did our research and the people we know best, our authors, can vouch for how funny, exciting and life-changing new beginnings can be. It's a major theme in so many of their books and, if you think about it, there wouldn't be much of a story if things stayed the same, would there? First up to test this theory is Jane Fallon, whose latest book, Skeletons, explores a catastrophic change to a person's life when long-buried secrets of a loved one resurface. We decided to ask Jane a few what-if questions and find out what she thinks of new beginnings. Do you find change daunting or is it something that excites you? Um, I think the answer is a bit of both. I find it very exciting in the abstract, but then in the immediate aftermath, I always find it a little bit daunting. I am someone that does quite like things to be the same as they always have been. Um, I quite like my habits and rituals and things like that. And if you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be? Uh, Absolutely, without a doubt, I would make myself less shy and more outgoing. I've always absolutely hated the fact that I get very shy and self-conscious and I have no small talk whatsoever. So, yes, uh, I'd reinvent myself as a fabulously outgoing life and soul of the party. And if you could choose another career other than that of a writer, what would it be? Uh, In my fantasy life, I've always been either an architect or a vet. And they were both things that I did think about when I was young, but unfortunately I haven't got the aptitude in either maths or sciences, so realistically neither of them are really things I could ever do, but I do like to think I could dabble, maybe, one day. And talking of new beginnings, describe the feeling of sitting down with a blank page before starting a new novel. I actually find that a really exhilarating time. I like the idea that that you haven't yet fixed the style of a book and you could you haven't fixed the way your character is going to speak or um, if you're writing it in a third person you haven't fixed the style of your narration so I think it's really enjoyable I get quite a buzz from writing those first few pages Do you think your style of writing has changed since the publication of your first novel Getting Rid of Matthew? Uh, I'm not sure my style has changed obviously it, it has evolved a bit and it changes slightly with every book you write every book is in a slightly different voice um, but I always like to approach them like I'm telling a friend a story Um, I think my writing process has almost certainly changed. Uh, When I was writing Getting Rid of Matthew, I was very disciplined and I treated it very much like a job. I would get up and I would work certain hours every day and I would sit there in front of my computer for those hours regardless of whether I was actually coming up with anything good or not. Uh, These days I'm a bit more haphazard, I have to say, and uh, I tend to work in any room of the house and at any hour of the day. That was Jane Fallon, whose latest book, Skeletons, is out now. Here's a question for you. Friendships. What would life be without them? Imagine you and I were nothing more than colleagues. We'd say hi to each other in the morning, have a meeting to discuss podcast plans, and then say goodbye at the end of the day. Wouldn't make for a very good podcast partnership, would it? Exactly. At the centre of all our great partnerships, as is ours, is a lifelong friendship, which is definitely true for one of the most loved and regarded British comedy duos, French and Saunders. Everyone knows them for their hilarious skits and side-splitting parodies, but how exactly did French and Saunders come to be? Much has been made, mainly by me, I suspect, of the fact that when Dawn and I first met at college, we hated each other on sight, and this isn't true. We were indifferent. She had come with a purpose, which was to learn to be a teacher. She actually wanted to teach. 
I had arrived not realising that it was a teaching course at all. A few terms in, when they sent us all into schools, I was genuinely shocked. I was hanging with the posh girls as far as she was concerned, and she had her own gang. To be fair, I was also living with posh girls. A friend of mine from Cheshire, Belinda Pritchard Barrett, quite posh, was in London sharing an attic flat in Kensington with two other girls, Fiona Pelham Byrne, posh, and Charlotte Kennard, extremely posh. I got on well with Belinda, who has a big laugh and a great sense of humour. She had done a cordon bleu cookery course and was now cooking director's lunches for a firm in the city. The other two were secretaries. I was a mystery to them. They never could quite understand what it was that I was doing, but they thought it terribly clever. They wore grown-up clothes, lipstick, court shoes and had drinks parties with young officers from the Welsh Guards. They had already become their mothers. Occasionally, I would be present at a drinks party wearing cord jeans, army surplus shirt and a pair of bright red kickers. I had to be explained. Um... Oh, this is Fur. She's living with us. She's a student doing something very high-powered. What is it again, Fur? I should explain, dear listener, that close friends and family call me Fur. I never liked Jenny, so it's either my full name, or Jen, or Fur, except Jobo, who has always called me Foffy, onwards. Uh, drama. I, I'm doing drama. At which point... There would be general mutterings of marvellous, so terribly high-powered and well done you, before they returned to their general chatter and G&Ts. Eventually, I moved from that flat because, in my second year, a place closer to college came up. It was on the top two floors of a house in Steeles Road. There were six of us living in it, and Dawn was one of them. She shared a room with Angie, her friend from Plymouth, and I had a small room to myself. On the surface, we had little in common, apart from the fact that both our fathers had been in the RAF. She listened to John Denver and Dean Friedman, and I listened to Elvis Costello and Patti Smith. Dawn and I would walk to college together most days, and I can't remember what we talked about, but I remember enjoying it more and more. We laughed a lot. We laughed about everything, but mainly about people. We became obsessed with an older actress who lived on the same street. We thought we'd seen her on television. We started inventing a life for her and hung out of the window to watch her comings and goings. I like to think of it as character study. I suppose it was our equivalent of animal study, which was done by the actors at college. Now, this involved going to the zoo, choosing an animal, watching it for a bit, and then going back to the studio and spending hours as that animal. We used to walk past and look in. Strange how many actors choose very slow animals that didn't do much at all. Sloths, owls, etc. Occasionally you'd see an actress that regretted the decision to choose a flamingo and having to stand on one leg all day. Hilarious viewing for us. Dawn and I can now both do vague approximations of an actress. It is the best feeling when you find someone who isn't just a good audience but can actually add to the funny and keep it going longer. If you're doing an impersonation of someone or telling a story, there are people who will interrupt and stop your momentum. And there are people who can make comments and observations that keep the plates spinning. We became great plate spinners. That was Jennifer Saunders on Meeting Dawn French from the audiobook edition of her autobiography, Bonkers, which will also be available in paperback on the 10th of April.
Now, from the start of friendships to starting relationships, Nina Stibby's latest book, Man at the Helm, follows a recently divorced woman and her two daughters moving to a rural village. Here's Nina introducing the book, followed by an extract of the daughters on a matchmaking mission. Uh, I'm going to talk about Man at the Helm, which is my novel coming in August. Um, it's the story of a family in the 1970s who move house from a town to a village um, after the divorce of the, of the parents. And they're really looking forward to it. They think it's going to be idyllic and lovely and they'll fit in and become part of the community. But um, it doesn't happen like that. And in fact, everyone seems to hate their guts. And um, the mother's response to this is to hit the bottle a bit and try out various prescription drugs and write plays. Uh, the children are much more resourceful, though, and they come up with a more practical solution. Uh, they make a thing called the man list. So, we agreed that our main aim in life would be to find a new husband for our mother, not only for her happiness, but to keep ourselves from being made wards of the court and ending up in the Crescent homes. We were realistic about it. We didn't expect her to be going out with a new man every week. We knew the dating game was tricky. We'd read enough magazines. We decided we'd contact, by letter, every suitable man in the area and invite them in to have a drink with her and hope that it would lead to sexual intercourse and possibly marriage, obviously one at a time. And here they are. This is the, again, this is the children. Um, this is following the, a visit from the first man on the list. Um, Mr Lomax, the Liberal candidate. In the post-mortem following Mr Lomax's visit, my sister and I were self-critical, and rightly so. Our aim had been that they should have a drink and then have sex in her sitting room and, and do it enough times until they got engaged and then married. But we'd let him slip through our fingers with bad planning and shoddy execution. And though we agreed that Mr Lomax wasn't the ideal... We evaluated our efforts as if he had been, even though he definitely wasn't. It had been a mistake, we agreed, not to have offered any snacks or put on any music. And this might have to, led to Mr Lomax feeling uncomfortable and probably peckish. And if there's one thing I knew for definite about men, it was that they cannot perform sex if hungry. <laughs> we, we also agreed that doing the play had only made things worse, and it wasn't surprising that it freaked him out. We didn't let it put us off, though. My sister consulted the man list and crossed off Mr Lomax and added Bernard, our father's chauffeur. I objected, saying that he and our mother hated each other's guts, but my sister mentioned the very fine line between love and hate, <laughs> i.e. that you're more likely to want to have sex with and marry somebody you hate than someone you don't care one way or the other about. <laughs> Which, when I thought about it for long enough, made sense, worryingly. <coughs> with that in mind, we added a semi-retired mechanic called Dennis, <coughs> who offered a taxi service in his Ford Zodiac, whom our mother also hated. <laughs> I wondered if it might be simpler just to instigate a reunion with our father, who she hated. <laughs> My sister disagreed. In her opinion, they were still chalk and cheese. Also, he'd begun to fade as a notion. It was the way with divorced fathers in those days. They tended to keep out of the picture from sheer politeness and convenience. Ditto non-divorced fathers, actually, mm -hmm. except with divorced ones, you actually never saw them, except for the odd Sunday lunch or to trudge across a field with a picnic. 
They were absent from your private life, and this was hard on the leftover boys like little Jack, because there was no man at home to show them how to make the noise of an explosion or to tell them that West Germany were better than Ecuador. Not that our particular father would have been able to do either of those, but it was the principle of the thing. And worse than that, they were absent from your public life, never attending parents' evenings or sports days or school plays, and never seeing nature displays or topic books. They never saw you perform, excel, try, succeed, fail. And this was hard on my sister, because it meant he never got to hear about her extraordinary cleverness in school, and therefore couldn't possibly admire her as much as he should. She did occasionally tell him about it, but it always sounded boastful and far-fetched and it sickened all concerned, so she stopped. I was the least bothered by our father's private and public absence, probably because I was certain he'd have been a fine father if it hadn't been for the divorce. I somehow didn't need his reminders to save lolly sticks in case of a sudden urge to make a model of Leicester Prison, as he'd done as a boy, <laughs> albeit with matchsticks. I had a good memory and I'd heard plenty of his advice on life. Neither did I need his seal of approval I just happened to think that, compared with everyone else on offer, he was the nicest and the best, and more importantly, the wellest known. He remained on the man list, theoretically, but, before you get any ideas, there never was a romantic remarriage. There wasn't even a tryout. We decided it was just all too tangled and unlikely, not to mention the travel. That was Nina Stibby reading an extract from Man at the Helm, which will be published in August. Up until now, we've talked about changes and new beginnings in relation to our authors and their books. But part of our job as publishers is to reinvent and introduce classics to new generations of readers, as is the case for our next two books. John Steinbeck has been distinguished as one of America's leading storytellers. We've donned five of his books with new gorgeous covers. Obviously, we can't show them to you on this podcast, but we will post them onto our podcast blog, thepenguinpodcast.co.uk. But for you lovely listeners, we have a reading from The Moon is Down, which explores the massive change and effects of invasion on both the conquered and the conquerors. By 10.45 it was all over. The town was occupied, the defenders defeated and the war finished. The invader had prepared for this campaign as carefully as he had for larger ones. On this Sunday morning, the postman and the policeman had gone fishing in the boat of Mr Correll, the popular storekeeper. He'd lent them his trim sailboat for the day. The postman and the policeman were several miles at sea when they saw the small dark transport loaded with soldiers go quietly past them. As officials of the town, this was definitely their business, and these two put about, but of course the battalion was in possession by the time they could make port. The policeman and the postman could not even get into their own offices in the town hall, and when they insisted on their rights, they were taken prisoners of war and locked up in the town jail. The local troops, all 12 of them, had been away too on this Sunday morning, for Mr Correll, the popular storekeeper, had donated lunch, targets, cartridges and prizes for a shooting competition to take place six miles back in the hills in a lovely glade Mr Correll owned. The local troops, big, loose-hung boys, heard the planes and in the distance saw the parachutes as they came back to town at double quick step. When they arrived, the invader had flanked the road with machine guns. The loose-hung soldiers, having very little experience in war and none at all in defeat, opened fire with their rifles. The machine guns clattered for a moment, and six of the soldiers became dead-riddled bundles and three half-dead-riddled bundles, and three of the soldiers escaped into the hills with their rifles. By 10.30, the brass band of the invader was playing beautiful and sentimental music in the town square, while the townsmen, their mouths a little open and their eyes astonished, stood about listening to the music and staring at the grey-helmeted men who carried submachine guns in their arms. By 10.38, the riddled six were buried, the parachutes were folded, and the battalion was billeted in Mr Correll's warehouse by the pier, which had on its shelves blankets and cots for a battalion. 
By 10.45, Old Mayor Auden had received the formal request that he grant an audience to Colonel Lancer of the Invaders, an audience which was set for 11 sharp at the Mayor's five-room palace. That was a reading from John Steinbeck's The Moon Is Down, which will be republished next week. Our next classic author to come back to the forefront of publishing is another great American writer, Jack Kerouac. And would you believe that we are set to publish one of his books for the first time ever? To give you some context, this book was never actually finished, hence the lack of prior publication. But having been discovered by our editors, it was decided that the story deserved the beginning it never had. Here's the editor, Laura Stickney. Jack Kerouac, when he was a sophomore at Columbia University in 1944, um, started writing this novella-length manuscript that he called The Haunted Life. Um, And at some point that year, he lost it under mysterious circumstances. He thought he might have left it in a taxi cab, um, but it turned up about 10 years ago in a Sotheby's auction and sold to an unnamed bidder who claimed they had found it in a um, closet in a Columbia dormitory. So it seems likely that Kerouac had in fact just le- left it in Allen Ginsberg's uh, dorm room where he had lived briefly that year. Um, and 1944 was a kind of pivotal year in the life of Kerouac. Um, it was when he solidified his friendships with William Burroughs and Ginsberg and Lucien Carr, uh, another friend of theirs who later that year would um, stab an acquaintance of his in Riverside Park. And Kerouac helped Carr dispose of the murder weapon that night and was later charged as an accessory in the murder and briefly jailed. Um, This episode would later become the subject of a book that Kerouac and Burroughs wrote together called And the Hippos Were Boiled in Their Tanks, which is also published by Penguin Classics. And what insight does this book give to Kerouac as a young man? Well, the book uh, tells the the sort of coming of age story of a college track star named Peter Martin. Um, And the book is set in a fictionalized version of Kerouac's hometown of Lowell, Massachusetts, um, called Galloway um, in in the novel. And so it draws um, quite heavily on on Kerouac's own life and clearly on his relationship with his father and his two closest friends. uh, both of which had at that point been killed um, in World War II, which I think obviously lends the um, the name of the title. And where does this book fit into the wider Kerouac context? I mean, wh- where is he at as a writer at this stage? Well, um, this this if it had been published when he'd actually written it, it would have been his second um, novel. So it's quite early on. The Haunted Life, unlike Kerouac's later works, like On the Road especially, is more of a realist narrative and doesn't feature that experimental prose style that he's so famous for. But at the same time, the, no- the novella does show a concern for things like male friendship, uh, the search for intellectual authenticity, and a sense of restlessness that would um, dominate in his later work as well. That was Laura Stickney on publishing Jack Kerouac's unfinished book, The Haunted Life. And if you'd like to hear an extract from the book, head to our SoundCloud page, www.soundcloud.com penguin books. Finally, we end on the ultimate new beginning in publishing with a debut writer. Although Simon Rowe has previously written about food and culture for a wide range of publications, Chop Chop is his first foray into writing a novel. Here he is reading an extract from his book. Hello, um, I'm here to read a little bit of uh, Chop Chop, uh, and the bit I've chosen is uh, a sort of overview in the middle of the book, um, a sort of bird's eye view of the grubby, crummy life of a chef. Um, This is how time moves for a chef. A jumble of events in no particular order. Are we taking great leaps or are we treading water? Unless the menu changes, how do you measure the passing of time? The monotony of the chores, the daily routines, 
Weeks turned inside out. Whole months lost. No seasons, hot or hotter. Spuds, stocks, bones, blood. Most of the last, not mine. When writing of the kitchen, it is important to remember the blood. What else do I remember? Only moments, voices. Sharam and I out on a Sunday morning, pushing a shopping trolley full of milk through the streets. All the well-to-do Camden couples with their prams. Sharam's trousers in rags. Shaky Sharam, jiving gently. An odd couple, he and I, our baby not like the rest. Running up the stairs with oranges in my apron, deep gastros of comfy lamb breast pulled from the ovens and stashed underneath the benches for later. Fat bubbling where the foil was torn. A delivery of game on Saturday evening before service. Hind legs poking from potato bags as we haul them to the cellar. Deer among the beer. And pheasant, eyes closed a little too tight, feigning sleep, still in their red feathers, collars around their necks. The film actress coming to eat one day and we, the chefs, sneaking out to catch a glimpse. The scene framed through a doorway. Another world, the starlet, laughing easily with friends. I'd fucking break that in half, racist Dave, confronted by beauty. Two worlds always in tension, each choosing to forget what the other is like, or else the whole show falls apart. From outside, our kitchen appears quiet, thoughtful. Inside, it is a cauldron, smashing pans, blazing jets, manufactured grief, little wailing, much gnashing of teeth. You've split the Bernays. Run it through the oven. More ship on this bass. Late night frenzy of the clean down, wanting to be done. Sniffing the mees, throwing stuff away. Cling-filming the containers, rolling the fridges. The kitchen relaxes. Music climbs. We've got to get out of this place. The chef singing along, painfully keen. Extraordinary rendition. An envoy is dispatched to make peace with the much maligned front of house. Camp Charles looks to the heavens and forgives. Now ask. Please, sir, may we have some beer? <laughs> the slack fooling that follows. Chefs stinging each other with rolled up cloths. Don't move away, you pussy. Stay still. No, you'll get me in the eye. I won't get you in the eye. You did last time. I won't. Drinks after work in O'Reilly's. Shattered, but you will have one. Rude not to. Is Camden an island or a bigger creature that we're living on? Spirits rise. Nora, the landlady, watching crossly as Ramilov, demonstrating a sexual activity illegal in the state of Texas, spills lager on the tired carpet. Dibbed in red-faced, ashamed he is laughing. Those powerfully sad Irish in their songs. Chefs discussing love. True love is sticking with someone no matter what. That's blind love. No, yeah, like a dog. Ramilov asking one of the old boys if he can make a brass rubbing of his face, throwing oneself out, a sign of good grace. That was Simon Rowe reading an extract from his debut novel, Chop Chop, which is available later this week on the 3rd of April. And that's it from the Penguin Podcast. To find out more about the authors and books featured in this episode, visit the website, thepenguinpodcast.co.uk. And don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes. If you have any comments or suggestions, you can email them to podcast at uk.penguingroup.com or find us on Twitter at Penguin Podcast. You've been listening to The Penguin Podcast.